In February, the Germans created the Battle of Materiel, but they had unfortunately forgotten to reserve exclusive rights in it. Arnold Zweig, Education Before Verdun. Hello and welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast episode 13, October Knockout. Sorry for the unusually long absence. It uh, took me much longer than usual to write this latest episode. So, sorry. Um, but I do want to come out right away and give huge and hearty thanks to everyone out there for the fact that on February 14th, this podcast hit the 5,000 download mark. That is like 4,800 downloads more than I ever expected for this whole project. So um, podcast metrics articles will tell you that downloads are not the best way to measure a podcast success. But me, I don't care. These downloads mean to me that all of you out there have well, downloaded the episodes, listened to them, spread the word, and, and that the uh, 5,000 mark came on Valentine's Day here in the U.S. Well, I'm just tickled pink by that. Thank you guys very much. And you folks have been liking the Facebook and Tumblr pages as well. And I want to list everyone who has done so uh, in the last few weeks. I think I caught everybody here. So thank you to the following. Tom, who produces the marvelously written First World War in 261 Weeks podcast. You guys should check it out. Ludovic, Louis, Frank, Fred, Erv. DDA, Valerius, Marvin, Vincent, Ben, Pascal, Souvenir Francais du Brionnet, David, Cyril, Olivier, Wayne, Thierry, Patrick, Mariam, Joseph B., Audie, Marcus, Joseph M., Dusty, Grim Reaper 061, some historian called Mike, not me, that's someone else. Neanderthal83. Otto von Bigman. Jen2015. Gabriella. Army and Stuff Guy. And Just Nessie. To anyone I've missed, thank you as well. Thank you guys very much. And I'm getting feedback from you guys and have had a great back and forth with listener Cameron. And... Thanks to listener Bob's emails with awesome photos, I now know what the urinals in Fort Duomont look like. So, next year, I plan on being at Verdun for the 100th anniversary of the start of the battle. If you take the tour of Duomont and happen to see a man being escorted out by security after 
possibly having relieved himself into what looks like a random grate in the floor, you will now be able to say, Hey, that's the Battle of Redone podcast guy. Also, from uh, Bob's emails, there's unexploded ordnance all over Le Mort Homme. So watch your step. Bob, thanks for the emails. Really greatly appreciated. As always, reviews on iTunes are a huge boost to the podcast. And as well, if you so choose, there is also a PayPal donation button on battleoverdonepodcast.com. All donations go to server and website maintenance and will be very greatly appreciated. All right. With all of that awesome admin stuff happily completed, let's get back to the Verdun sector on the Western Front. When we last left off, it was towards the end of September 1916, the beginning of October 1916, and an eerie quiet had settled over the Verdun battlefield for the first time in seven months. Artillery flare-ups, bursts of machine gun and rifle fire occasionally broke out, but for the most part, it was deathly quiet. German Frontkämpfer and French Poilu, alike in their forward shell holes, stayed out of sight as much as possible, moving only at night and even then, only when absolutely necessary. On the French side, morale had risen through the summer, as the pressure on Verdun had lessened with the failure of the German attacks in June and July. Local German attacks during the summer set French teeth chattering, but with the arrival of Team von Hindenburg-Ludendorff in early September, even these small actions ceased. Unbeknownst to the French 2nd Army, operations by the opposing German 5th Army had been reduced to defense only. Then HL, as von Hindenburg and Ludendorff referred to themselves in communiques, lowered Verdun on the priority list as part of their plans for the Western Front. The lowered priority of the 5th Army, at first, unofficially, due to the opening of the Battle of the Somme in July, and then officially, with the new leadership's orders in September, seemed to send the signal for the Germans to begin breaking down and losing their collective scheisse. From February through June, and even into July, the morale of the German units fighting at Verdun had remained relatively high. The going was tough, but they were grinding forward with each new attack. The Germans themselves sometimes wondered how morale had stayed up for so long. But with the failure to take Fort Souville on July 12th, it's like the glue that held the 5th Army together began to melt away. First, slowly through the summer, but then quickly as August turned to September and October. As we've covered before, the latest gains the Germans had made had turned into exposed forward positions that were now plastered constantly by French artillery or found themselves the focus of French General 
Charles Mongin's ceaseless assaults. The Germans had never had anything like Pétain's Noria system to replace battle-weary troops. Instead, replacement troops were sent piecemeal to battered units on an as-needed basis. Decimated units were replaced when they were decimated. So as a German infantryman assigned to Verdun, you would serve until you were killed or wounded. Some large formations, like General von Svail's 7th Reserve Corps, had been at Verdun since the beginning of the battle with no relief. With the Somme offensive, other units were pulled out of Verdun to be sent there, where they were smashed to pieces and the broken remains sent back to Verdun a few weeks later. So, you might survive Verdun to be shuttled over to the Somme, where if you survive that, you'd be incredibly and doubly lucky again to get rotated back to the shell holes past Fleury or the wreckage of the Ouvrage de Diomont yet again. These battered units now getting shelled daily by the increasing superior French artillery, now supported by unassailed observer planes and balloons, frequently wouldn't receive the full complement of replacements needed. As summer gave way to fall, the good weather began to fade. Nights got colder for the exposed troops. Then the nights in the Meuse region began to freeze. It rained. The front went largely quiet as October opened, but now the land became the enemy. Trenches that froze at night thawed during the warmer daytime and then caved in. I can think of few things more terrible than the thought of being smothered alive in a trench cave-in. The mud, of course, was always a danger, and men who got lost were drowned. So this is what the 5th Army was facing in October 1916. Self-inflicted wounds became increasingly common. Desertions increased to the point where summary execution orders were passed out. The German army as a whole was coming under incredible pressure in that summer and fall of 1916. And on top of all this, every German at Verdun knew the French counterattack was coming. On the other side, things were finally looking up for the French. No one talked about the Tavana Tunnel disaster on September 4th, of course, so the vast majority of the Second Army went about unaware that it had happened. In the last weeks, seven depleted divisions from Second Army's total of 22 had been replaced with fresh poilus at General Joffre's consent. Supplies flowed into the Verdun front along La Route, as did artillery and 15,000 tons of artillery shells. It was time. 
for the French to go on the attack. General Pétain, in overall command of the upcoming operation, would have it his way and his way only. His beloved Poilus would not attack without the reassuring pounding of their guns behind them. Not this time. And it's funny how history repeats itself. Pétain's grand attack at Verdun was supposed to kick off on October 17th. But the Meuse weather delayed things just like back in February with the Germans. Just like his counterpart, the Crown Prince, as soon as the weather broke, Pétain gave the go-ahead. On October 21st, the steady bombardment of the German lines suddenly turned into a firestorm. 700 French guns opened up on the right bank, from the Hadramont quarries to Fort Douaumont to Thiamont to Fleury to Fort Vaux. The objective of the attack? Taking all of these places just named back, especially the two forts. They'd been in German hands long enough, and ownership of the right bank meant owning those two forts. When I was in eighth grade, my history teacher described to my class that Sherman's march to the sea during the U.S. Civil War was like a 60-mile-wide bulldozer that destroyed everything in its path. So the way General Robert Nivelle had the French guns work was like a miles-wide rototiller that thrashed and then churned the attack sector over and over. Between October 20th and the 27th, the French would fire over 1,300,000 shells at the attack zone between Fort Douaumont, Fleury, and Fort Vaux. Everything within this area was being mercilessly targeted. In his memoir, The Holocaust, from a survivor of Verdun, then-German soldier William Hermann was on the front line on October 21st in a shell crater with a dead teammate and two living ones when, quote, we were struck by a deafening roar. The earth around us was moving like an ocean of crests and valleys, and we with it, end quote. Hermann hid under the body of his dead comrade as shell hole after shell hole gushed up its stones and bones, only to rain them down again. New concepts were being finalized and rehearsed once more, two more, and ten more times, as the guns hammered the Germans. General Nivelle had been working on the Barrage Roland for over a year, but the months of fighting at Verdun and the Somme gave him the time to get a good model in place to execute. Here's how the rolling barrage would work. There would no longer be just a bombardment, which would clearly lift to the enemy's secondary positions and thus signal the infantry attack was now coming. Now, 
French 75s would rake the German first line and shift 50 meters up every two minutes. 75 meters behind the falling shells would be a wave of poilus, now all trained to stay close to the barrage. The French would now attack the Germans just seconds after the shells lifted forward. The infantry would advance 100 yards every four minutes to stay close to the artillery. It was dangerous. It was ballsy. 150 meters ahead of the falling 75 millimeter shells, French heavy artillery would be pounding the ground and everything on it or in it. The heavy artillery would be picking up and shifting up 500 to 1,000 meters at a time to ensure it stayed well ahead of the attacking infantry while cutting off any German reinforcements. Another new concept that had developed on the 1916 battlefields was that of the new rifle platoon. It was no longer just guys with rifles led by an officer. Nivelle, with Pétain overseeing and approving, had reorganized the French infantry platoon and 2nd Army into a much more flexible mix of riflemen, rifle grenadiers, and machine gun teams that would now produce like four times the firepower of this unit. These platoons would also move forward in small groups that supported each other as one group rushed forward and the other laid down fire. Sturmtruppen tactics. Right here is the birth of the modern infantry platoon. And as we're on the topic of new stuff, let's talk Pétain, Nivelle, and Mongin's objective to retake Fort Douaumont. How do they plan to do that when every previous attempt to retake the monster fortress had failed? Back in episode 6, in May 1916, the French had hit the fort with 370 millimeter mortars, and that had done nothing. Mongin had attacked with his 5th Division and had left just under half of its 12,000 man strength on the southern approaches to the fort. Well, this time the French had even bigger guns. Two brand new 400 millimeter guns lay miles behind the Verdun front. These monsters, built by Schneider Crusoe, were so big they were mounted on railway platforms. The guns had been camouflaged to hide their presence from the Germans. Although with the French long since masters of the sky, there wasn't much chance for them to be discovered. Those new 400mm heavies went to work. Fort Dumont had been hit with millions of shells at this point, and the 18-foot thick layer of soil over the concrete and rebar had been severely reduced in many areas. From the air, the outline of the fort could only be seen as a faint impression in the ground. But inside the fort was a different story. A Major Rosendahl of the 90th Reserve Infantry Regiment was in command of the garrison there. In the soldiers' quarters, all was neat and tidy, as if in barracks just outside Berlin. The hallways were clean, there was electricity in the fort, 
And it even worked. There was a telephone, and it worked too. Rosendahl kept discipline tight. Military routine kept the troops sharp and kept their minds off the constant rumble coming through the walls and the roof. On October 23rd, a gray, miserable day, French focused more attention on Fort Douaumont. The rumble and the pounding increased significantly. The Germans inside the fort began to instinctively look up at the ceilings over their heads. Gas shells fell on the areas around the fort's entry points. At 12.30, the men inside the fort felt a new sound. A sort of low, hoarse roar that seemed to come from high up in the sky, according to Georges Blond's Verdun. Let's pause. You are in a fort under meters of concrete, brick, and earth. The fort is rumbling from an ongoing bombardment. For you to be able to discern the sound of a rushing freight train, despite all the noise and insulation, is something truly remarkable and unimaginably terrifying. That sound was the first 400 millimeter shell from the French railway guns. There was an explosion like that of any other shell on the roof, then the thud as the shell hit. Then there was a massive explosion inside the fort, immediately knocking men off their feet. Everyone was dazed. What the hell had just hit them? That first shell punched right through the roof and exploded in the sick bay on the upper floor, killing everyone in the room instantly. And the shock, smoke, and confusion of that first hit, it took the Germans a few minutes to work out where the shell had landed. They found it by the unfiltered noise of the artillery bombardment. The shell had torn a gaping hole in the roof over the sick bay. Hardly had the Germans recovered from that hit when the freight train sound came again. This time, it blew one of the observation turrets and its occupants to pieces. With terrible punctuality, a 400 millimeter shell hit the fort and its surrounding area every 15 minutes, the time it must have taken to load and re-aim one of the guns. Each time one of the rounds hit Duamont, it felt like the fortress would crack in half like the shell of a walnut. When one of the shells missed, it blew massive craters in the earth around the fort. After the fourth direct hit, Major Rosendahl sent the survivors to the bottom level of the fort. The upper level was untenable. Germans were now crowding in the same cellars the French territorials had been in when the fort was first captured. A fifth shell hit, sounding like the end of the world. The sixth shell came in, 
punching down and hitting an ammunition storage room. A secondary explosion sent smoke roiling into the halls. With the perforated roof and walls, poison gas began to filter into the fort now as well. The alarm was called, and every man capable of doing so put on their protective masks. Every 15 minutes, another 400-millimeter freight train crashed into the fort. In the smoke and gas-filled darkness, with fires raging in the fort, and ad hoc firefighting teams locked in a hopeless battle with just bottles of seltzer water, Major Rosendahl made an unenviable decision. Only a group of combat engineers would be staying in the fort. Everyone else was to evacuate through the French barrage and try to get back to German lines. Rosendahl must have known that to keep his men in the fort was a definite death sentence, whereas out in the open, they might have a sliver of a chance at survival. The Major's men must have balked at the order, but if they did, it was done so internally. With remarkable discipline, groups of soldiers, led by NCOs, left the fort and walked out into the firestorm. They were out by mid-evening. The remaining troops inside both fought the fires and manned machine guns at the fort's entrances. The smoke and gas were making casualties of near everyone, with guys dropping left and right. 400-millimeter shells had stopped by midnight, but the regular bombardment continued. The captain remaining in command as Rosendahl fades out after the evacuation. This captain pulled everyone out of the fort. These remaining men ran through the barrage to whatever illusion of safety they could find. By 5 a.m. on October 24th, Fort Duamont lay empty and with its insides burning out of control. For three whole hours, the fort lay empty and open. At 8 a.m., however, a squad of 20 Germans led by a captain discovered the empty fort. Fires inside had died down some. This captain, named Prolius, decided to hold Duamont and set up his men at the entrances, like the group before them had done. Outside Duamont, the Germans were getting pounded as never before for what was now the fourth day in a row. Frontline units were sending back situation reports that they were decimated and incapable of any significant defense, if they answered at all. German artillery largely remained silent. On the 22nd, French artillery had suddenly stopped, a signal that the French infantry were about to rise up from the mud. German guns began pounding away at known French first-line positions ruthlessly and uselessly. General Nivelle had used the silence trick to get the Bosch to reveal the position of his guns. Now the French gunners, masters of counter-battery fire with their highly accurate 155mm guns, opened up on them 
Within a short time, nearly 70 batteries worth of artillery, 45% of the German 5th Army's capable response had been destroyed. I'll doubtlessly be oversimplifying this, but in the science of artillery and the firing of projectiles, you can do counter-battery fire. It involves a lot of math, triangulation, and the angle and force with which a shell landed, the stuff like that. You put all that together, and you can figure out where the gun that fired that incoming shell is located. You then blast that area to kingdom come. So the French were very good at this, and they pulled off a stunning feat on October 22nd. The Germans had not expected that at all. On October 23rd, Pétain, Nivelle, and Mongin met as the French guns continued to till over the attack sector relentlessly. I can imagine these three guys in a room together around a table of maps. Pétain and his simple soldiers, horizon blue, arms folded across his chest with his mustache drooping and his eyes brooding. A discussion of the preparation and the coming attack take place. Nivelle, dressed in a sharp, probably custom-made uniform, smugly self-confident that his rolling barrage is an awesome idea, says, We're ready. I don't see how we can't succeed. Then there's Mongin, built like a brick outhouse with his hands behind his back, straining at the leash as always. He is also supremely confident that his men will be successful. Pétain continues to look at the maps quietly. Then he turns his cold blue eyes to Mangin, nods, and says, Hit him, Charlie, and put some stank on it. October 24th, at 11.40 a.m., on that gray, gloomy, and foggy morning, French infantry attack began. The bombardment didn't stop. Instead, the Poilus rushed towards the German lines right behind it. Pétain had promised they would be properly supported. And with Nivelle's skills as a gunner, this promise was kept. Eight French divisions were formed up for the attack that day. Three across the attack front, with three as the second line, and two in reserve. From left to right on the first line were the 38th African Division, aimed at Fort Douaumont, the 133rd Division under General Passaga, and the 74th Division aimed at Fort Vaux. The 38th Division was one of Mongin's favorites, its ranks filled with the colonial troops he loved. It was staffed with the Regiment d'Infanterie du Maroc, a mix of Moroccan and Senegalese soldiers. The Senegalese were particularly hated and feared by the Germans, for the African troops took no prisoners. The 38th Division had been specially trained for weeks at a scale mock-up of Duomo, 
set up to the south of Verdun, constantly assaulting the fake fort until every man in every unit was sure of his part in the attack. Facing the French were seven badly battered German infantry divisions, stacked one behind the other from the front line back. In the area of the first line, existing really only on maps, units were down to a shadow of their normal strength due to the barrage and steadily increasing desertions. Not even the draconian orders about abandoning one's post was stopping the Germans. Poilus kicked off across no man's land as fast as they could, each man carrying a load of 60 to 80 pounds on his back. Because of the state of the ground, with the constant shelling and recent rainfall, every man had to become a warrior slash pack mule. There was no other way to bring up the needed supplies of food, ammunition, and the like. So, from the thick fog, the Poilus came. A battalion of the Moroccan regiment in the 38th Division got lost in the mist, but otherwise, all the other units moved across the shattered ground. Because of the weather, the remaining German artillery, savagely beaten two days prior, stayed silent until 11.52. Too late. By 11.52, the first wave of Poilus was already swarming over the first German positions, and the German shells fell on empty trenches well away from the action. The stones and gray mud that was Fleury Village, scene of some of the nastiest and costliest bloodletting during the battle, fell to the advancing French with hardly a fight. The shattered Ouvrage de Diamant, another point so bitterly fought over during the summer, was surrounded in minutes. William Hermans, by this time a willing prisoner of the French after all his squad members were killed, was brought forward to help negotiate the surrender of the hundreds of Germans huddling underground. That was the thing this time. There wasn't much fight left in the Germans that faced the French attack that day. With the onrushing Poilus, any German who put up resistance was immediately shot down. But by the dozen, Germans were surrendering, relieved at the chance to be removed from the Verdun battlefield. Many hadn't been fed for days, and the only water they drank was from shell holes or the rain. The Poilus moved forward at 100 yards every four minutes. This advance was sufficiently rapid that at the Ravin de la Dame, the exhausted and stunned staff of a battalion were captured just minutes after the counterattack began. One German officer was captured wearing nothing but his underoos. Das er nicht mit seiner Waffe in der Hand gefangen. 
Google Translate. I hope I got that right. In the fog, literally, and the confusion of the attack, Germans were passed by to be collected later by the second and third waves of attacking Frenchmen. One French sergeant counted over 200 Germans left sitting in a bunker. As the French barrage picked up and shifted forward at the prescribed times, the advance continued. The Poilus began dropping their heavy packs on the ground, keeping only rifles, grenades, and ammunition. The Bosches were breaking, and every man sensed that the advantage lay with them. In the mud and fog and shell craters, it was a day for glory for French forces. They were finally attacking, taking ground back, and oh yes, they were putting the stink on the Germans. Medals would go out for actions done that day. Like for Private Ulysse Lenin of the 401st Regiment d'Infanterie. Lenin was scouting in no man's land when he ran into a German machine gun nest. Armed only with grenades, Lenin and the Germans just kind of stared at each other. For some reason, the Germans took him for a deserter and let him pass by. Minutes later, the Germans opened up on the main body of the attacking French. Lenin circled back and then tossed grenades at the machine gunners. When that didn't work, he pulled a pin on a grenade and ran right up to the occupied crater. He threatened to kill every German in the hole with the primed bomb he had in his hand. The fight really was out of the Germans this time. Instead of just shooting Lenin, 17 Germans raised their hands. Of the 17 Germans, two of them were officers. Weeks later, General Pétain himself would pin the Légion d'Honneur on Lenin's chest. Fleury, Diamant, Ravin de la Dame, all had been recaptured by the wave of horizon blue overrunning the countryside. General Mongin was on top of Fort Souville again, where three months prior, a firefight had raged when the Germans hit their peak on July 12th. Mongin scanned the battlefield with his binoculars, but could see nothing in the fog. He had seen his soldiers disappear into the mist, but nothing else of them since. Inside the mist, dispersed flashes signaled the artillery was coming in like it should, but that was the artillery. What of the troops behind it? What about the capture of Douaumont? Mongin was anxious. His original plan had been to take the Hadramont quarries, Diamont, Ravin de la Dame, and the Ravin de la Colouvre between Douaumont village and Douaumont fort. But Pétain had told him to go big in his plans, so Mongin had made his secondary plan his first. Douaumont would be taken on that very first day. On the ground, in the fog, Major Nikolai 
and his 8th Battalion of the Moroccan Tirailleurs were advancing through the gray suit by Nikolai's compass alone. The Major was lost. He'd gone a hundred yards every four minutes, but had veered off course in the devastated landscape. Nikolai was a colonial officer just transferred from Indochina and brand new to the Western Front. Where the hell was Duomo? Fate answered. Suddenly, a solitary figure stumbled out of the fog ahead of the 8th Battalion, dressed in ragged field gray. A German. In about two seconds, this German had 20 bayonets at his throat. Where's Duomont? Nikolai demanded. Right behind me. I just came from there, the German said. He'd been a waiter in Paris before the war. He offered to show the French where Duomont was. As they moved up the fog, it began to lift and thin out, leaving the massive tortoise shell hump of the fort in view. The Moroccan regiment surrounded the fort. Nikolai's battalion had been trained to assault the fort itself, and they wasted no time. Immediately, Poilus fanned out to all the known entry points as smoke poured from Duomont a thousand meters up into the sky. Major Nikolai's second-in-command, a Captain Doré, scrambled up onto the roof of the superstructure to direct the battalion's actions further. The Moroccans and Senegalese came under fire from the group of German defenders under Captain Prolius. Prolius had desperately signaled for more men, but he received no reply from anyone. German units were being crushed under the French steamroller. This last-ditch defense of Fort Duomont lasted no more than a couple of hours. The Moroccans cleared the entry points and then stepped into the fort. It was a private who found the remaining German troops with Captain Prolius in the lowest level galleries, and he proceeded to capture them. Fort Duomont was in French hands at a cost of two killed and 12 wounded. After all of the horrific battles and massacres that took place over the fort, it fell with hardly a fight for the second time. But it was still a stunning victory for the French Second Army. Mongin could see none of this. The fog kept obscuring the fort. But one of his division commanders received a map literally tossed at him by a French pilot flying dangerously low overhead. On the map was a frontline trace of French units showing Poilus in possession of the mighty Duomont. Vive la France, the pilot had written. In the afternoon, the fog around Duomont burned away. Through his field glasses, Mongin saw three Moroccan soldiers on the recaptured fort's roof, waving wildly. They'd done it, just as Mongin had been saying they would. 
French were still apprehensive, though. In the evening of the 24th, the Germans launched local counterattacks. But these were shot to pieces by the supercharged poilus on the ground. The crown prince and his staff didn't try anymore after that. They knew they were attacking to recapture not just a strategic military point, but a symbol as well. And the symbol of Douaumont was irrevocably lost. In one day, the French had retaken what it had taken four and a half months of German blood and treasure to conquer. For the German Frontschweine, the loss of Uncle Duomont was a heart-rending blow. Some soldiers noted that it felt like a part of Germany itself had been taken away from them. On the 24th, the Poilus of the 74th Division had come right up to Fort Vaux on the right of the attack line. On the 25th, hoping to maintain the momentum from the day before, they attacked Vaux. The attack failed, and the French drew back to their starting positions. Here, Betan must have pulled the reins on the operation. The Germans had counterattacked once, and with past performance in mind, they were sure to try again. There was also no reason to attack a strong resistance point if it needed further softening. Betan wanted to conserve his men from needless casualties. So, the French now aimed all their heavy guns at Fort Vaux, and they sledgehammered it relentlessly. The pounding continued to wear down the protective layer of earth and concrete over the fort until on November 2nd, a 220mm round smashed through and caused a catastrophic explosion inside the fort. The desperate Germans inside radioed that they were getting the hell out now, and the French overheard. They acted on it right away. On the evening of November 2nd, 1916, a company of Poilus walked into the fort and reclaimed it for 2nd Army. Fort Vaux, too, fell without a fight. It really was a monumental achievement. For the French. The recapture of Forts Duomont and Vaux were the greatest victories seen on the Western Front since the Marne over two years prior. The success of the attacks had undoubtedly proved what overwhelming artillery and the new infantry tactics could achieve when synced together. French 2nd Army had hit the German 5th Army with an October knockout from which it could not recover. But again, the French didn't know the full extent to which the 5th Army had degraded. 
After the capture of Fort Vaux, the French dug in and waited for what must surely be the inevitable and forceful counterattack. But it didn't come. Verdun settled back down into an uneasy quiet from November 5th on with the sporadic outbursts of terror when the infantry and artillery of both sides clashed or blasted each other. For the most part, the Meuse weather again became the greater enemy as Poilu and Front Kempfer alike hunched down in their waterlogged shell holes as temperatures dropped and the ground began to freeze consistently. General Nivelle wasn't done yet. Very understandably, he wanted to grab the next line of heights north of the two forts so that he could distance the front line from the forts and thus secure them against any future attacks. General Joffre approved the attack and even offered a couple of fresh divisions to assist in its execution. Okay, so General Robert Doty's thoroughly researched book, Peric Victory, about the French army in World War I. In that book, uh, Joffre, quote, insisted on maintaining pressure on the enemy during the winter, end quote, uh, as the reason for approving this next operation at Verdun. It makes sense. However, perhaps another aspect was coming into play. Operations on the Somme had finally fizzled out and the numbers being tallied pointed to another Joffre failure. Between July and November 1916, the French army had lost another 203,000 men in Papa Joffre's grand plan, with the British taking a staggering 419,000 men lost. The result? A seven-mile-deep bulge in the German line filled with ruined earth and dead bodies. It was not the result so promised by Joffre. And now the calls for his head politically were getting awfully loud and awfully public. A success anywhere might help him weather the pressure he was currently under. So Nivelle, his man, would definitely get permission to attack. On December 10th, the miles-wide rototiller started up again, with hundreds of French guns blasting the hills north of Douaumont and Vaux. The barrage again mercilessly chopped up the Germans and their defense lines until December 15th, when in the middle of bad weather, four divisions of Poilus came at the Germans behind their rolling barrage again. The surviving Germans were shocked at how fast the French came in after the artillery. 
German resistance was feeble. And by the 17th, the French had pushed three kilometers past Fort Douaumont, retaking the line Louvement, Côte de Poivre, Bézonvaux. On the right bank, a good portion of the front line was now where it had been at the end of February. The Crown Prince would later call December 15, 1916, a black day for his 5th Army. With the capture of the hills past the forts and the ruined villages on them, operations by the French 2nd Army were halted on December 18, 1916. And this is the formal date given for the end of the Battle of Verdun. In the French counterattacks since October 24th, some 40,000 men had become casualties for the French 2nd Army. In light of the battlefield and the previous months, the losses were considered light in comparison to what was gained. As the days passed, French and German alike again settled in to what then Captain de Latre de Tassigny from Usby's The Road to Verdun described as, quote, a terrain which was just a half-frozen charnel house. Impossible to make any attempt at digging trenches. The men were split up into small combat groups on the edges of the few shell holes where there was no risk of getting too badly bogged down. Every night, men disappeared into the icy mud. End quote. So, we will leave it right there and be back for one more episode on the aftermath of the battle. So, next episode, we'll wrap things up as neatly as possible and then see what else we may have to talk about. Questions, comments, and concerns, please email me at Verdun podcast at gmail.com. Hit me up through Facebook or the website battleofverdunpodcast.com. Thank you so much for your patience in the long gap. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Take care. <laughs>